Hello, everybody. I think you're all starting to show up. Oh, you are all starting to show up. So look, I, uh, I use Zoom meetings a lot. I don't know that I've ever used Zoom webinars. So you all have to help me by telling me you can hear me, tell me you can see me, telling me that there's a chat feature and it works, etc. I'm getting some yeses. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate that. I'm going to open the chat window on my computer. And to be honest, I don't, <laughs> I don't know whether you can all see each other's chat. Can you? Yes, we can. Yes. Good heavens, there's 200 people here. Listen, I'm going to tell you all this story. When I called my friend Jody Moore, and I said, Jody, can I come on your podcast to talk about something called Money School? And she's like, yeah, of course, that sounds amazing. What's Money School? And at the time, I had no idea. I just decided there was something called Money School. And let's do it. Because I wanted to teach a small class. And when I say teach a small class, I literally thought it would be so fun to spend a few weeks with like 10 people. That would just be a really great time. And then 1,700 of you have opted in to hear about Money School. And as of my last checking, something like, 400 people have signed up for the morning session and 400 for the evening session. I want you to know I'm ecstatic about this. I love it. I love public speaking. I'm thrilled to help you over the next six weeks, but I will admit to being a little caught off guard by the interest in a pleasant way, in a positive way. So I'm glad you can hear me. I am gonna ask some of you brave folks to come on screen with me. We may have some clumsy moments while I figure out uh, how to invite you on the screen with me, but I'll appreciate your patience. Here's my last question. I have this mic right here. It's a good mic, but sometimes it's not the mic that gets used. So my question is, is my audio echoey or does it sound pretty good and clear? I'm getting sounds good, sounds clear. Okay, thanks. Hopefully it doesn't, the mic doesn't creep up and cover my face as we talk. Okay. Great, let me share my screen. Let's chat. We're probably gonna do, I don't, I have probably 20 to 30 minutes of prepared material and I want to have a good chunk of this session be my interactions with you all and uh, just, just good discussions and insights. So let me share my slides. And then as I share my slides, let me make sure I can still find my chat window. So you got my participants here, and I've got my Q&A window. Where? This is the worst thing about Zoom. Where do your little windows go? Here's my chat. Perfect, just arranging. And then there's Q&A. Well, some folks have their hands up. That's great. We'll get to your hands and your questions. Oh, here's the Q&A. It is just amateur hour right here. Okay, great. Okay, so on the screen, you can see my slide. You can see Money School. Let us work our way through it. I probably won't go full screen with the slides because if I go full screen, then I can't see your chat. So we'll just stick here. This is Money School with Mark Butler. And the whole goal of this program is to have you feel better about your finances. So let me make sure I'm preparing you correctly for what this is. In the world of money, in the world of personal finance, there are so many different topics we can cover. Many of those topics fall under the heading of technical and tactical. And that sounds something like, what's your favorite expense tracking software? And should I be putting my money in a 401k or an IRA, a mutual fund or a CD or whatever? Those are the very technical and tactical questions. Money school is about your feelings for the most part. Now we will use some technical tactical stuff to help discover our feelings and to change them. But money school is mostly about feeling better with your finances. See, I think if I can get you to feel a little bit better with your finances, then you have the ability to figure out what behaviors, what, what uh, habits you wanna change. I trust you to figure that out. I may suggest some things, I may prompt you with some things, but mostly I'm trying to get you to feel a little bit better so that you can pursue new, new behaviors if you choose to. 
I've had something like, uh, many of you filled out the welcome survey and something like 550 of you have filled that out. And as I study every single one of those responses, maybe 2% of those responses have a, a tactical or a technical element to them. And the other 98% sound like, I have a lot of shame, I feel a lot of guilt. My parents argued a lot about money. My parents were critical of each other or they were critical of me. My spouse is critical of me. I'm critical of my spouse. We fight a lot. We, I get a lot of responses that sound like we have a lot of money, but I still can't sleep at night, etc. And that really confirmed to me that the right path for money school was to focus on the thoughts and feelings we have about money. Because if we can figure out the thoughts and feelings, we can probably start to reshape our behaviors. We're going to start with an exercise. So I hope you have something to write with because I want you to take yourself through a little bit of an exercise. You've got three tiles on your screen right here. And let's start with the tile that has a car on it. Let me tell you a little story. My 13-year-old son, my love, is obsessed with cars. And he's brilliant with cars. He's like a 13-year-old master mechanic. It's pretty fun to watch. He's obsessed with cars. And one day, driving through our neighborhood, we saw a vehicle. And this vehicle happened to be owned by a neighbor and my son being car obsessed, A, loved the car, was immediately obsessed with it, and then said, dad, if they have that car, if they have that vehicle, they must be so rich. So the first part of this exercise is I want you to write down on your paper, what vehicle did my son see and how much did it cost? Go ahead and do that now, take, take 20 seconds. And if you're feeling confused because you're like, Mark, we, you haven't given us any information. I don't know what vehicle it was. Yes, that's the point. I'm trying to see what your brain comes up with in a flash. When my son says they have that vehicle, therefore they are so rich, what vehicle does your brain think my son saw? And if you want to put it in the chat, by the way, that's fine too. That's fine too. So we're getting some answers. Somebody says Ford Mustang. Somebody says $80,000 Tesla. We lots of Teslas. Ferrari, $190,000. The chat is blowing up. Okay. What's interesting and what I want you to point out or what I want you to notice is when your brain was asked to supply a car that means rich, your brain had a very easy time doing it. And I just think that's fascinating. What's also interesting is even among these, these responses that we're seeing in the chat right now, everything from Ford Mustang to uh, Range Rover to Tesla to Lamborghini, limousine, notice the range of responses. Just notice the range of responses. Next story, next exercise. A few years ago, I was having a, a conversation with someone very close to me about this very topic. And I was kind of explaining my philosophy about money and how I try not to load money up with too much emotion and how I don't really have judgment of people's financial behaviors because I don't really think there's a lot of right and wrong when it comes to money. There's a lot of personal preference. And this person said to me, well, that's all well and good, that's fine. But what would you say to somebody who has like a really outrageous amount of credit card debt? What about then? So your next step in this exercise is to write down or drop in the chat what your brain considers an outrageous amount of credit card debt. Take a few seconds to do that. Already flying into the chat. Ooh, some 100Ks right off the bat. 100K, 200K in credit card debt, 25,000, 5,000, 50,000, 30,000. anything above 10,000. Notice, notice how interesting that is. We have people in our audience today who are sure that $5,000 is a quote unquote outrageous amount of credit card debt. And we also have people in our audience today whose outrageous number is $200,000. By the way, I will tell you the answers to all these little uh, stories when we finish the exercise. 
somebody else says any credit card debt is an outrageous amount of credit card debt. Fair enough, totally fair. Last story, also a couple of years ago, I had a client, I was in a client meeting and this client, we were reviewing her spending and we noticed that she had spent a certain amount of money two months in a row. She had spent a certain amount of money on clothing. And not just that she had spent a certain amount of money on clothing two months in a row, she had spent a certain amount of money at one particular store two months in a row. And when she saw that number, she was horrified. How much did my client spend at that store on clothing two months in a row? Here they come, $1,700, $1,000, $500, $120, $120, okay, $500. Just notice this, isn't this fascinating? Isn't this fascinating that we have people in the audience who very reasonably would say, spending a hundred bucks two months in a row on clothing at a single store just sounds shocking. And we have other people who are definitely in the multiple thousands on clothing in consecutive months that they would, that's what it takes for them to feel shocked. Here's why we're pointing this out. We're pointing this out because our definitions of reasonable, outrageous, normal, they're so different. They're so different across all of us. Oh, this is fantastic. Somebody just dropped into the chat. Is there a special event? I need, some, I need more information. I'm so glad, and I hope I pronounced your name right, Damian. Damian, I'm so glad you put that in the chat and I hope you're okay that I, put, I dropped your name just now because you asked such a good question. You made such a good point. The point being, I need a little bit more information. And I've done this exercise with audiences before and I've had people say that exact sort of thing. Look, before I can make my assessment, in other words, before I can make my judgment, I need a little bit more information. If I just had a little bit more information, I'd be ready to judge the situation. And I want you to know how normal that is and how human that is to say, I can make a judgment, I just need different facts. And one of the main points of money school is, you don't need more facts. You just need to acknowledge the judgment. Because when we're saying things like that vehicle indicates that the family or the person is rich, or that's an outrageous amount of credit card debt, or that's a horrifying amount to spend on clothing, we're, we're judging. And you now judging is such a buzzword and there's, you know, we're all anti-judging. I don't want to be judgy. Uh, it's not what I'm about here. What I'm asking us to notice is when we see other people's behaviors, we assign meaning to their behaviors. And that probably matters a little bit less than the meaning we assign to our own behaviors. So what I'm trying to do with money school is I'm trying to get you to disconnect somewhat from those judgments. I'm trying to get you to disconnect from mostly the criticisms that you might have about yourself and about your approach to money. And I'm trying to get you to disconnect from some of the fears and the anxieties and the shame that comes with those judgments. So just to make sure we don't leave you, you know, with open loops in your head about these, uh, these exercises, I can't, <laughs> I, I, who knows if I have a neighbor or a friend of a neighbor on this call, so I'm not gonna tell you exactly what the vehicle was. Uh, the vehicle, my son tells me anyway, I didn't look it up. The vehicle is about 90 grand, the vehicle that we saw, about $90,000. And it's very nice, by the way, it's shiny. The credit card debt that the person told me she would consider horrifying was 20,000. And the amount spent on clothing two months in a row at the same store was right in the neighborhood of $1,700. Arbitrary numbers, totally arbitrary numbers. The numbers themselves have no power. They have no, no particular meaning. But just notice how quickly our brains want to assign meaning and generate emotion based on these kinds of things. So where we need to start is with the, the reality that money is deeply personal. And when I say money is deeply personal, 
I don't mean in the way that we tend to think about money, which is like, well, money's private, it's taboo, um, it's none of your business, because I don't believe any of that. I am, I am weirdly comfortable sharing pretty much any detail of my, my finances, business or personal with anyone who asks and with some who don't. And by the way, that's not because I'm some rich guy, whatever rich means. I was kind of always that way. For some reason, I've never, I've just never felt very weird sharing financial details. I'm not totally sure why that is. But when I say money is personal, I'm not saying private or taboo. I'm saying it's individual. And one of my big, uh, one of my big concerns is that if people are feeling bad about their finances, it might be because of other people's beliefs that they've adopted. It might be because there are certain bits of financial dogma that are so common in our world. They are so pervasive. They're in every personal finance book, they're on every personal finance blog, they're in every personal finance podcast, that it becomes like the water that we're swimming in. If we're fish, all of these default money beliefs become the water that we swim in. And it's hard to even notice that they are there because they're so ever present. So I think one of the first steps to feeling better about our finances is trying to become aware of the default beliefs we've adopted that might be causing us some pain. And I know this is true in many areas of our lives. Money, I think, is a particularly good place to start to start becoming aware of what beliefs we've adopted unconsciously that are causing us suffering, okay? So brave souls, I'm gonna ask in the next couple of minutes, I wanna have somebody come on the screen with me if I can figure out how to do that. And we're gonna talk about some of these default beliefs. Let me give you some ideas that we can challenge. And then with a couple of you, we'll talk about how to challenge those ideas. Let me put these on the screen. If I were to boil down all the thoughts that people download to me about money over, honestly, over the last seven or eight years, I've got to be over a thousand conversations one-on-one -on -one with people about their money. And because I move in the world with life coaches, you know, life coaches have sort of a particular language around money. That's why the word abundance is on the screen. But I would say these four words on your screen right now, the word need, afford, abundance, and debt come up over and over and over and over again. What's interesting is trying to grab onto these ideas or trying to conform to your sense of what these ideas are supposed to mean seems to cause a lot of suffering in the people that I'm talking to. So let's start with the word need. Now I'm gonna ask some brave person to come on screen with me and talk about something right now that they think they need and that they don't have or that they can't have. So I'm looking at my, what? I'm looking at my chat. You all are taking a second to think about it. Who's willing to come on screen and talk about something they need? All right, there's Callie. Callie, you're up. Now Callie. How do I, so I'm going to click invite and I don't know how to make you a panelist. Oh, this is going to be too bad if I can't figure out how to make you a panelist. Oh, here we go. Here we go. So Callie, raise your hand. And then I'm going to click a button that says invite to talk. There you are. Promote to panelist. I'm gonna stop sharing my screen. You're here, but I can't see you. Can you turn on video? Market says unable to, you can't start your video because the host has stopped it. <laughs> the clueless host. <laughs> the clueless host. Well, I'm a clueless participant because I can't help you with that. Uh, okay, well, I'm just going to let you talk then. 
and not, okay. not bog us down. Kelly, what's something you feel like you need in your life financially? Um, I just moved to Utah in August and have kids in college that will be, um, anyway, so I am needing a house so that I can house my children. <laughs> I need a house so that I can house my children. Yes. Why do you, so why do you need that? Um, well, I don't know if I need that. I would like to provide a house for my kids right now. So the, the arrangement right now is I just moved to Utah. I am in an apartment basement, um, uh, figuring out a place that I can get here so that I can, it's big enough for all my kids to be in. Okay, great. So you, you need a, are you going to live in the house? I'm going to live in the house. Yes. So it'll be me and my four children. And are, are all your kids college age? Three of them are one of them still at home. Who's a sophomore. Okay. So I need a house so that I can house my all four kids, but the college age kids. Now, is there a particular reason that you need a house to house all four of the kids? Well, I would like to provide the option that like that, for example, this summer, um, to have, if they need to come home, if they need a place to call home, to come home for the summer to work, mm -hmm. one of them already has an internship and is, is getting married. And so the other two, so I would like to have a house that's an option for them to come home to. Okay. So I want to thank you for sharing this, Callie, because you, you've illustrated the point perfectly. And we all do this. I do this every day. You started with, I need a house. And then the first follow-up question I asked you about it you switched that language to, I would like to give my kids the option of having a place to stay. Yes. And we're not going to, I mean, we, we could talk all the way through this, this idea and this issue, but the reason I appreciate what you're saying is that in a, in a, in a Western society and, you know, I think most of the folks uh, on this call are Westerners from some part of the world. We actually don't really have many needs anymore. If, if we were to define need as something that, you know, I need to, con that I, I consume in order to survive, food, water, shelter, maybe human contact, love, whatever, we could probably put those things under the, the need heading, but pretty much everything else goes under the want heading. So, and I don't know if this is the case with you, Kelly, but if we're saying we, if, we're, if you're saying I need a house that, that occupies the four of us, I'm curious, how are you feeling about the house project? Like about the house situation? Um, I am feeling pressure. I, I've put pressure on myself for sure. Cause I've given myself a deadline by April. Yes. By the way, you might've said, I feel great. I feel fine. And that would have been totally okay. But it is interesting that when I say, how does this idea of needing a house to feed, fit a certain number of people by a certain date, how are you feeling about that need? I feel pressure. I've got a deadline. I think the pressure is coming from the idea that it's a need. Mm, I like that. And it's probably coming from the fact that on some level, you think that not having that place for the four kids and you will create some sort of negative results, negative outcomes. What are yes. those? What are those, by the way? Well, I'll tell you, um, I've done some coaching on myself with this is part of it. It's just the, the desire to still be a provider for my family. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I think it does come a little bit that I've been a single mom for 15 years mm -hmm. and um, that responsibility has been on my shoulders and um, I also take pride in it, by the way. I know that there's some pride um, issue there as well, because mm -hmm. um, I want my kids to think of me a certain way. I want to feel a certain way, like I'm a great provider for my kids. I'm a, you know, um, Kelly, just you, those sort of things. <laughs> look, you are more honest and more insightful than most of us. Let me tell you why I have that opinion. I think this, this, this thing, this calling the house a need for most of us, when we call something a need, like I've, I've played this game with people before and they're like, well, what? Like my kids need new shoes. They need new shoes. That's obviously true. 
you know, and then not to be snarky, but I'm like, let me show you this picture of these completely joyful children running around the world barefoot. Do they need new shoes? And then quickly, what comes out is we usually, I think, when we're trying to support an identity, we use the word need to describe those things that we think support the identity. So you very honestly shared, you have an identity as a provider. You have an identity as a single mom who's gotten the job done. You've got, you, and, and you very honestly said, ultimately, I want my kids to think of me a certain way. It's easiest to wrap all of that up in a sentence like, I need to find a house that fits me and my four kids by April. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Now, you may very well find that house. You might feel less pressure if you shift the, 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 the way you talk about it from I need it to I would love that. subtle, but significant. I would love to find a house that fits me and the kids by April. And if you switch it from a need to a want and own it as a want, you open the door from, for some honest internal dialogue about why do I want it? What if I don't get it? What are my alternatives? What are the benefits of the alternatives? What are the drawbacks of the alternatives? I have no personal judgment of you getting the house or you sending the kids out to live in their own apartments or live in dorms or whatever. I, I have no judgment of any one of those scenarios, but if you're feeling pressure and if that pressure is causing other negative things in your life, a release on that pressure might be acknowledging the house as a need, as a want instead of a need. I like that. I wrote that down. And somebody just very wisely put in the chat, don't and you don't need to judge the want. And I 100% agree. We're going to talk about this a little bit more um, as class goes on, but what we're trying to do is become curious and compassionate about our wants. Step one to becoming curious and compassionate about our wants is to stop pretending we have any needs. over and over in personal finance books and personal finance blogs. It's like step one, figure out your needs versus your wants. And I'm like, well, I'm breathing. I have clean water, which I know is a luxury and a privilege because there are people who don't. Uh, I have a home. I like, I have clothing. I have reasonable access to medical care. The things that I could reasonably put under the needs heading are, are handled. And if they weren't, I have a community that I could lean on to help those needs be met. So those things are pretty much dealt with in my life. Now I can relax, put everything else under the heading of want, and then deal with it in a compassionate and curious way. Thank you, Mark. I wrote those things down and, it, and I already can feel the shift inside me. Look, you got, you got a, I mean, a standing ovation for me, like you're doing a great job. Um, I hope you'll feel less pressure as you do that job. All right. The next question is how do I make it so Callie's not a panelist anymore? <laughs> Uh, let's see. Let's see. Callie Poe. I'm sorry. Um, can someone put into this chat, Mark, here's how you make it so Callie's not a panelist anymore. I didn't know how to test this. It should show at the top of your chat. Yes, thank you, whoever you were. You are wonderful. 
um, change role to attendee. Okay, thanks, Kelly. Thank you so much. These things are so much better with that kind of participation. Next up, let's talk about afford. Some of you have may some of you may have seen my my email the other night about the concept of afford. How uh, I, I happen to be a Spanish speaker in the Spanish language. There's no word for afford. For a long time now, I've pretty much hated the concept of afford. I don't think it takes us anywhere meaningful, but some of you right now are struggling under the idea that there are things that you can't afford. Some of you are uh, feeling entitled to things because you have decided you can afford them. And I'm just curious if any of you want to talk about the struggle that comes with this idea of affording or not affording stuff. Anybody want to jump on screen with me? Okay, let me stop my screen share. Let me come back to my panelists. Let me find, somebody says, love you, Mark, you are doing great. Look, if you think I am above that kind of validation, you are absolutely wrong. Please keep it coming. That's very nice of you to say. Okay, so I've got hands up. I saw Shanna. I'm going to allow Shanna to, to um, Shanna or Shauna, you're going to tell me in two seconds whether I'm pronouncing your name, right? It's Shanna. Hi, Shanna. Thank you for being willing to do it. Being willing to do this. Tell me about what you can and can't afford. Uh, you know, that is something that I have been trying to do a lot of work on myself for mm -hmm. the past several years. Um, I grew up in a family of nine kids and I was the oldest. And so everything was, we can't afford that. Mm. And then eventually, um, like for instance, when I was 13, I really wanted a CD player boom box for my birthday. A CD player. And, awesome. <laughs> and my parents were like, we can't afford that. We don't spend that kind of money for birthday presents. And then I magically got one for my birthday. It wasn't the one I wanted, but it was wonderful. Okay. And so I found that I've had this kind of hang up of, I can't afford things unless somebody else allows me to have them. Oh, okay. And the word afford goes up along with that. When I read that email about it not being in Spanish, I was like, oh my gosh, I got to pay attention to this part. <laughs> Because that's, that's just been my whole life. My grandparents um, have, my mom's sister is my age. And the only way I ever got to go on any trips as a kid was because of my grandparents. The only reason I got a car when I turned 16 was my grandparents. And so I'm still personally struggling with being able to say, I can afford that. Okay. I... I'm able to do these things without someone else's else giving them to me or their permission. Yes. So you nailed it to me. I mean, you've obviously, obviously been doing some work on this, but the concept of afford as I've, as it's come up in conversations over the years with clients and friends, I've kind of sorted those conversations or those, uh, the ideas into kind of two piles. When people tell me they can't afford something, they seem to be in a state of blame uh, and powerlessness. So it's like, well, I can't afford it. The idea being, it, it's not my responsibility whether or not I have that thing because I can't afford it. Whatever this afford thing is either letting me have it or not letting, letting me have it. So it's saying I can't afford it very often seems to be a person who's in a state of blame or it, it feels too strong to say playing the victim because I don't necessarily believe that, but it's in that neighborhood. Okay. Mm -hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, when I hear people say they can't afford it, it's, it's very often coming from a place of entitlement. Well, we're buying it because we can afford it. it and I realize that afford is not an unreasonable concept in, in every single circumstance. You know, somebody could say, well, yeah, we're, you know, we bought a car, we can afford it. And they're very calm. And it's almost like, commonplace to them. But when I hear that phrase, it usually seems to be coming from a place of entitlement. 
that's why I really push back on the concept of afford in general. And I say, give me a different sentence to describe what you're believing and what you're feeling. And you, you hit it on the head. It really comes down to what am I letting myself do? Am I letting myself make this, this purchase or am I not letting myself make this purchase? So is there something right now where you think you're not letting yourself make the purchase because you decided you can't afford it? Or is there something that you think you theoretically could afford, but you're still not letting yourself buy it? Does anything come to mind? Uh, travel really is a big thing. Okay. So I, I would love to travel and take, take my kids on these trips that I was able to go on as a kid because of my grandparents. Okay. So do you think you cannot afford the, a trip with your kids? Yes. Okay. That's fine. Now be more specific. What does it mean that you can't afford? I mean, we know that my punchline is it means you're not letting yourself, but let's just let you think what you think. Right. What do you mean when you say you can't afford it? I don't see how I can accumulate the money we need to cover all of the expenses. Associated with one, one trip? With one trip, yes. So just for everybody's benefit to bring, to bring like, to make this more precise, um, Shanna, are you saying specifically, there's not the amount of money in your checking account right now to pay for uh, a specific trip that you have in mind? Yes. And you know how much money that would be? Yes. And you don't have that amount available on a credit card? No. And and that's another thing is, credit cards were always, you know, bad sure. growing up and never get a credit card. And my husband feels very much the same way. And so we don't, we don't have credit cards. Totally fine. I totally support you in having or not having credit cards. The, uh, the interesting thing here is as we move away from the idea of afford, we allow ourselves to explore things like, do I have the dollar amount in checking? Do I have a credit card that would hold that amount? Do I have a retirement account from which I could draw to make that purchase? Could I borrow against equity in my home? And I think for some of the people on the call right now, probably alarm bells are just going off. Like, what is this crazy person talking about? Taking money from retirement to pay for a vacation? Right. Don't misunderstand. I'm not voting for that. I'm saying if we want to feel less terrible, we trust ourselves to put all of it on the table and then one by one say, I I physically don't have the dollars to do it there. I don't have a credit card. I have a, let's say I have a retirement account from which I could draw. The interesting thing about even allowing yourself to have that conversation is it takes you out of the, the trapped feeling and you get to have a conversation with yourself and with your spouse and say, wait a minute, we could take the money out of our retirement account. Why would we do that? And why would we not do that? And then you have the calmest possible discussion about why you would or wouldn't. And you may still end up at saying, well, yeah, we're not going to take money out of the 401k to go to Disneyland. We're just, we're not going to do that. But instead of saying you can't, you're saying here is why we choose not to. We do not like the implications of that path. Therefore, we choose not to take it. And in the specific case of a retirement account, the implications you might not like could be taxes and penalties. It could be robbing, you know, if you choose to use the word robbing, it could be robbing from our future selves. But at that point, at least you're very clear on what you believe the implications of the decision to be. And you can be, you're taking ownership of those implications instead of throwing it all under the heading of we can't. And then having done that, you're able to say, well, in, since I've gotten rid of the I can't and I've, and I've acknowledged that I'm not willing to pursue these other paths, what's open to me is the most powerful question in personal finance, which is how could I? I don't want a credit card. I don't believe in credit cards. I'm not going to get a credit card. Okay, great. I'm not going to take money out of my retirement account. Okay, great. How could you? 
Now you've shifted into, I have options. I have opportunities. I can explore things. And maybe next week I won't have the money for that vacation. But if I send myself down the path of exploration, maybe next month or next year, I have the exact amount of money I need for that vacation. Is that useful to you? Yes, very. The interesting thing about you, and you said you're married, right, Shanna? You and your husband? Yes. Pardon? Uh, you and your husband earn money. Yes. <laughs> I know I'm Captain Simple, like Captain Obvious right now, but you and your husband earn money. So the question of whether or not your, mon- your household has the ability to generate money, that question has been answered. So you are very reasonably able to ask yourself the question, given the fact that we have already earned money, how could we earn more? If we really want to do things like take a vacation. So everybody listening, Shanna's case is, it's so generous of you, by the way, to share this, Shanna, because all of us are in such a similar situation where when we use the phrase, I can't afford, we cut ourselves off to every single scenario that allows whatever thing we're telling ourselves we can't afford. Including, ironically, we cut ourselves off from the opportunity to say, actually, now that I think about it, I probably could purchase that and I just don't want it, it turns out. I don't know that you'll apply that to your you know, a vacation with your, with your family, but there are things in our lives where we say, well, I could never afford that. That cuts us off from the introspection where we realize, wait a minute, I actually don't even care to have it. This would apply to things maybe like cars and houses. And I think there are times where we might see a friend or a family member build a big new house and our brain immediately flips on the can't afford conversation in our heads. But we might, and, and if we buy into it, like, well, I would love to do that. We, we could never do that. We can't afford it. It's like, well, if I don't let myself say I can't afford it, then I open the door to saying, do I want it? What would I gain and lose if I were to build the big new fancy house? So much more to be learned there just by keeping that door open. So that's what I've got for you, Shanna. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was really so great of you to share that with everybody. Um, maybe you just mute yourself now. I guess maybe I don't, because I don't see you in my, oh, let's see. Disable, Shanna, I'm about to disable you as a talker in Zoom. Thanks for doing this with me. Okay, next up, we're going to move quickly. We're going to move to this idea of abundance. And I want to hear from somebody who is thinking, oh, I just wish I were more abundant with money. And I know you're out there because hundreds of you said it in survey responses, but you'll notice that as you're saying, I want to be more abundant, you're feeling worse and worse. (laughs) Who is willing to chat about that? Um, I think Janelle, you just raised your hand. I'm going to allow you to talk Janelle and you can tell me if that wasn't you. Yes, it's me. Hi, Janelle. Thanks for being willing to chat. Thanks. Thank you. Tell me about this abundance thing. Um, abundance. So I have in about two or three years ago, I felt fairly abundant. And then, um, over the last couple of years, um, uh, my financial worth has decreased. And so now I feel more uh, panicked that I've gone backwards. So now I feel like I'm not abundant. And then I feel guilty for feeling like I'm not abundant. Mm, okay. Uh, take me back to two or three years ago when you say you were feeling abundant. Uh-huh. Uh, what was happening? Um, I... I owned my house um, free and clear. I wasn't making any payments. Um, 
and I had a job that I liked, um, on my car, you know, didn't have any debt at all. Mm-hmm. Um, do you need more information than that? Um, no, I can work with that. That's great. Mm-hmm. And then you're saying between there and here, your financial facts changed. So maybe where there was no debt, maybe there is some debt or something like that. Um, well, no. So I still, I still choose not to go into debt, but I have, I've sold my house and, um, and I've spent a good amount of that money uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, don't have the ability right now to, you know, just turn around and, and buy a house again. Um, like I did before. So I feel like I've just gone backwards. Now, are you, uh, are you a coach or do you, have, do you have experience with coaching? I have a little bit of experience with it. I am not a coach. Totally fine. I'm curious. Do you know when this, this, uh, concept of abundance kind of came into your awareness? When did you start using that, that word to define financial situations? Uh, probably, <laughs> ironically enough, back in the time that I started, you know, about three years ago. Okay. Do you remember at the time thinking, oh, I am abundant or I'm being abundant or something? I'm I'm just very curious, like at what point you uh, awarded yourself the, the, the label or the title? I don't remember thinking that I was abundant at that time. Um, I, I learned about it and, but I didn't necessarily apply it to myself. I probably would have said that I was fairly abundant, but it, I was, it was more kind of like learning about it. It was just a new concept. So I guess what I'm wondering is, uh, have you started to use this abundant idea more recently to define what you are not? It, it, <laughs> that is a very good question. Probably so. I was not aware of that, but probably I have used it more to define myself as not abundant. When I read these hundreds of survey responses, the, the word abundant and abundance seems to come, more, come up more often in self-critical statements. Sometimes they are self-criticisms that are disguised as aspirations. I wish I were more abundant. I want to be abundant. And it seems to me that the, per- the people saying it are mostly not feeling great. And I already wasn't that thrilled with the concept. And as I've read these hundreds of responses and chatted with you, my opinion is not changing. I can't figure out what use this concept is to us. <laughs> It's useful as a marketing ploy for people that are selling personal development. Janelle, you have (laughs) uncovered the secret of all coaching sales, which is anchoring. We anchor people to big numbers and big concepts and hold them out as the thing to be chased. Yes. And make no mistake, I do it. I try to do it in a way that doesn't make me feel gross but I do it. I choose not to use the abundance one because I don't know what it means. When I quiz someone about abundance or lack of abundance, what I mostly uncover is that someone who self-describes as abundant will point to their behaviors and say, these are abundant behaviors. I, you know, I'm easy with my money. I'm kind of like, I don't mind spending or, or saving or giving like money. I feel relatively relaxed about it. I'm good with all of that. But the word abundant seems to cause more pain than it, than it relieves as far as I can tell. Yes. So this is why, this is why when I'm talking to people about money, if they say, I want to be more abundant, I say, I look, you can define that word however you want. And I support you. But if, if I can be of use to you, it might be in helping you be more specific about exactly what you're thinking and what you're feeling in specific circumstances. And very often people will say, well, I'm feeling like I'm not abundant because I had X dollars, but now I have X minus a lot and therefore I'm not abundant. It's a weird way of sort of 
um, blaming ourselves for, for financial facts. Yeah. The weird thing about the blame to me is that we're blaming or we're giving responsibility to the wrong thing. We're saying, well, I'm not abundant. And if I were abundant, my financial facts would be different. And I tend to say, well, actually, if your financial behaviors were different, your financial facts would be different. And I don't have to have you use the word abundant to change your financial behaviors. I probably have to have you raise your awareness of your financial behaviors and decide which of them you want to keep and which you want to get rid of. But that's why I pretty much dropped the word abundance. Well, I never had it in my vocabulary, but it's why I don't, I, I, I don't encourage people to spend a lot of time or energy on their abundance or lack of abundance. Yes. Thank you. That, that is brilliant. Really. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janelle. You're brilliant. Just keep going, figure out what behaviors you want to keep and which ones you want to let go of. And you're, you'll be golden. Thank you. All right, now disable talking for Janelle. Okay, last one we're going to talk, and this one could, it will fill up a whole class. I think we'll do a whole class on debt and money school. You know what? And in fact, since we are going to do a whole class on debt and money school, I'm not going to bring somebody on screen to chat about this one yet. Let's move forward to our kind of conclusion. And again, thank you to everybody who's participating. Uh, a lecture on this topic might be okay, but a discussion on this topic is fantastic. And you've all given me a discussion today and that's what, and that's, what's best. What you have on the screen is a sort of a spectrum of emotions. And when I read hundreds and hundreds of survey responses, I'm seeing lots of people who are feeling relatively negative about their financial situations. Oh, thank you everybody. I'm not sharing my screen. Please hold. I'm hearing from a lot of people who aren't feeling great about their finances. And, I, and, a, and a lot of those people express a desire to feel great about their finances. And I want you to feel great about your finances too, but I'm willing to have you go through an intermediate step, which is to feel less about your finances. More neutral, more, more at ease. And it's interesting being in the coaching world because I think coaches like Brooke Castillo and Jody Moore do a, a wonderful job with this idea as it relates to something like uh, self, sort of self-love and body image. And I know that they've worked with thousands of people who feel a lot of loathing about their appearance. And I think they're brilliant when they say, look, if your dominant thought right now is I hate my body. I'm not even trying to get you to jump to, I love my body. I want to give you some intermediate steps that sound something like I have a body. My body carries me through the world. My body lets me hug people. I love my body allows me to do things. That's these are intermediate steps on the way to, I love my body. Ironically, we seem to not give ourselves the same grace when it comes to money. If someone says, I'm anxious about money, we keep throwing at them. Well, I love my money. Don't you love your money? I love my money. I love money. It's like, hold on. The intermediate step is I use money in my life. I earn money. I spend money. Money purchases groceries. Money purchases vacations. Money purchases the roof over my head and clothing. Money is something that I use. Money is something I experience. I'm, I'm trying to get us to head that direction. And then if you want to move on to loving money, you can. You may or may not decide that's necessary. But if I'm trying to help you feel less negativity about your money, the way to do that is to make it less emotional in general. And that means not worrying about a lot of positive emotion relating to money and letting go of the negative emotion and trying to get to a place where there's relatively little emotion about money. In the long run, I can choose my money thoughts, my money feelings, and my, and my money actions. In the short run, I can use curiosity and compassion to raise my money awareness. That's what we're doing in money school. 
we want to use curiosity and compassion to raise our awareness, to reduce our, our fear, our anxiety, our self-criticism on the path, if we choose, to feeling great positive emotion about money and about spending, saving, giving, all of it, earning. Curiosity and compassion are, to me, crucial intermediate steps. Duplicate slide. Okay, here is your homework. And then I think I can, um, well, let me give you your homework. Your homework is each day for the next week, I'm inviting you to just write one compassionately curious sentence about your money. And if you're in a relationship, share your sentence with that person. And we're all in a relationship. Share it with a friend, share it with a family member. One compassionately curious sentence about your money. Now, some of you will want to write an aspirational affirmation, like I love money, I am abundant, et cetera. Totally fine, not what we're doing here. We are getting compassionately curious about the everyday mundane facts of our finances. I will go first. Oh, by the way, one of my favorite ways to do this is to talk about myself in the third person as an observer. And I like to say that guy. For example, here would be a compassionately curious sentence about me and my money. That guy really seems to like to buy black t-shirts. That guy seems to only wear black t-shirts. Curious. And by the way, this is something I've noticed about myself over the last couple of years. I've gone from like having some amount of variety in my wardrobe to I wear this black t-shirt, this exact, every, not this exact t-shirt, this style of t every day of the week. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Write the sentence. And that could sound like you could say about yourself, oh, she really seems to like to eat at that restaurant. She really seems to like buying clothes at that store. And then the way you open yourself up to learning is you say this, I wonder why. So it sounds like this, that guy really seems to like black t-shirts. He seems to wear those every single day in almost every setting. I wonder why. She seems to love shopping at that store. I wonder why. Now here's the key to the whole exercise. And I think this will be the hard part, and I want you to know I believe in your ability to do it. Ask yourself the question, I wonder why she's doing that or he's doing that, and then do not answer. Go for a walk, chat with a friend, ask yourself the question, and then leave it hanging. We are way too consumed with having quick and clever answers about ourselves and others. And if we will compassionately, uh, compassionately observe ourselves in our lives, ask ourselves open-ended questions, I wonder why, and then resist the urge to answer quickly or to dig in, then we, re we remove so much of the fight. And then as we move through our world, the answers appear, they bubble up and then we can work with them. Write a compassionately curious sentence about your earning, spending, saving, giving. Might try making it a third person observation. Ask yourself or make the statement, I wonder why, and then move on. Uh, Somebody just put in the chat, Corolla just put in the chat, which is great. She says, would it be compassionate to say that gal doesn't seem to like to look at her bank account balance? Work with it, Corolla. Here's how I would phrase it. That gal hasn't looked at her bank account in the last number of days, weeks, months. Just observe the, the specific neutral behavior. 
and then say, I wonder why. It's a great, a great example. Thank you, Corolla. If anybody else wants to drop a couple in the chat, we can chat, we can, we can, uh, we can talk about those. In the meantime, I'll just do our, our kind of bookkeeping here. Uh, tomorrow, there will be a Money School podcast. The audio from this class will be episode one of the Money School podcast. I will email, email out a link to that and um, we'll be going forward. There will be in the not too distant future, a Money School website doesn't exist yet. In the meantime, watch your inbox because that's where I will live as much as daily, if you can handle it. And on we will go. Next week, we're going to talk about spending in particular. And we're going to talk about how to observe our spending, track it, and do so in a way that teaches us something instead of causes us angst and self-criticism. You are also generous to come spend this hour with me. And I am so thrilled to spend the next five weeks working with you. Okay, everybody. We will be chatting. I'm going to sign off and talk to you next Wednesday. See ya.